It's the idea that you use logic to come to like the wrong conclusion. And because you are using logic, you think you came to the right conclusion. What Henry Hazlitt argues in this book, Economics in One Lesson, is that there's this network of logical fallacies that mutually support each other and obscure the truth. Hello there, this is probably the weirdest setting for ever recording an intro for the podcast because I'm with Danny. Say hello, Danny. What up? We are driving from Banff to Lake Louise and came out to Banff for a couple of days uh, to hang out after our New York Sprint shows and felt like Danny needs to see Lake Louise. But we don't have our microphones with us, so we're literally recording this one in the car. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today we've got Ben Prentice on the show. Now, some of you will know Ben because he works for What Bitcoin Did. He's our in-house Austrian economist, and he recommended a book to both Danny and I, Economics in One Lesson, which I listened to a while back. Now, definitely go check that out. There'll be a link in the show notes, but we decided to get Ben on the show to talk about the book, talk about some of the ideas within it. So this was the first show we recorded in our New York Sprint. Hope you enjoyed. If you've got any questions about it, please do get in touch. You can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. We also recorded our first bonus content for Patreon subscribers. If you want to go and check that out, the video is up on Patreon. It's basically a behind the scenes and us all giving each other a little bit of shit. Bit of fun. Hopefully you'll enjoy that. Anyway, any questions about the show, as I said, just drop me an email. Hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hope you enjoy this. Over to Ben. How you doing, Ben? I'm good. How are you, Pete? Friend, colleague, Bitcoiner. I know. I'm a plant, right? <laughs> Paid chill. <laughs> Paid chill, man. Not in the context of this conversation, but... No. <laughs> How long have we known each other now? Well, do you count when I met you in Boston, when you bought me a beer at that bar? <sighs> yeah, I remember that. Hey, Danny, can you tell me down just a touch? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. God, that was at the event at the uh, MIT. MIT. Yeah. yeah. And... I was you. You tried to buy me a beer. Yes, and you wouldn't let me. No, I was like, "Fuck off, man! I'll buy you a beer." God, I forgot about that. How long ago was that? I think it was 2019. 2019. Shit, that was four years ago. Yeah, that was a whole cycle. Yeah, it could have been 2018, but I don't remember. We did a whole halving. It was. Yeah, it could have been 2018. I think it was 2018 actually. Yeah, it could have been. You know, how you can find out. You find the first show I ever made with Jack Mallers. It was at the same trip. Didn't it, it was cold out, so it was. 2018 to 2019. It was snow. Yeah. It was snow on the ground. Mm-hmm. I was, I got, got so drunk there. <laughs> that's a good event. They put on a really good event. I, that's, I did a yeah. bunch of really good interviews there as well. I had Jack Mallers on. I interviewed uh, my first show with Andrew Polstra. Yes, I remember that. The legendary Andrew Polstra. March 2019. Huh. That's what it was. So we're coming up to our halving. <laughs> our halving's about a month away. Well, listen, man, it's been great to get to know you and great to work with you. Happy to be on the team, man. I, I love working with you and I love, I love working on Bitcoin education. I, I'd like, w- however I can, you know, be a part of it. Well, it's, uh, you've been a great addition to the team. Uh, I think uh, Danny loves working with you. And obviously, it's one of those things, because you, you work with us, I kind of forget about the fact that you're like, a very good guest to also have on the show. And Daddy was like, uh, I think for about a year, Daddy's been saying, we need to get Ben back on the show. I was like, yeah, we do. We need to get Ben back on the show, talk to Ben. Um, but here we are. We've got you here in person. And we're going to talk about, we're going to do economics in one podcast. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> That's the idea about economics in one podcast. I listened to this book. Can't remember who. It's probably you who told me to listen to it. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I drove from here in New York to... Where's out west from here? Pittsburgh? Pennsylvania? Yes, it begins yes. with a P. 
Yeah, both of those are. So it sounds like a seven-hour drive? Yeah, ish. Yeah. Really boring drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, horrendously boring drive. So I listened to the, I listened to it on that drive, and then I stayed there, and then I went south. I can't remember. It was years ago. Um, and it's probably a book I should go back to. Everything made sense at the time. I was thinking, yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, but like, why is this, why is this a book you show so much? Yeah, because this was one of the first books I read about Austrian economics and it's, it's a, obviously it's first principled, but instead of, you know, I think it focuses on looking at, um, a concept that, you know, Bastiat, who is a, a French economist, um, from even earlier, um, he laid out the idea of the seen and the unseen. And this idea of trying to acknowledge the consequences of our actions. And, you know, this isn't like a hardcore anarcho-capitalist um, perspective. It's, it's more of just trying to acknowledge the, the, with the real consequences of, of policies that we might enact, things like that. And, and it, it, it forces us to take a step back and avoid um, logical mishaps so that we can really know what we're doing with society. So I just think it's a great foundational kind of way to approach economics in general. And uh, to somebody who's maybe only experienced Keynesian economics or only understands Keynesian economics, uh, for me, something I, I, I studied economics at school. We have uh, everything called GCSEs and A-levels. You do GCSEs up to 16 and you spend two years doing A-levels. Uh, you do four of them, sometimes three, and one of mine was economics. Uh, a large part of that was Keynesian economics, and at the time it was taught as truth, and this is, it's not a debatable theory, this is economics, right? right. So um, for those who've only got any experience of that, no experience of Austrian economics, uh, can you explain why there are competing schools and how for you, you how you consider these different schools? Like, do you consider them as uh, both subjective and one has better arguments? Or do you think, does one take you more towards the truth? It, it, let's, let's be careful about using the word truth. Exactly, um, yeah. I, I think that the approach of uh, Austrian economics is to try to um, be more careful to, you know, the Keynesian economics is really like what most people think of as economics. And I think what Austrian economics tries to do is is take a step back and say, wait a second. Um, and it's, it's almost a retrospective. So it's, for me, it's not like one school or the other. Um, in, my, in my study of Austrian economics, which I'm not an expert or whatever, um, what it's, it's gotten me to do is, is to use logic about the world versus like, you know, as you said, you learned in school, here's some Keynesian principle, learn this, right? Um, or learn, here, l- learn this Laffer curve and, and these, uh, you know, these, these rules and laws. And I think what Austrian economics tries to teach you is to use logic yourself to derive things about the world, to um, understand how, you know, maybe what, again, like I said, the things that we aren't seeing, right? And um, I think the, 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 the part of this book that actually stuck with me is actually a, kind of a takedown of Keynesian economics. Um, and it's right near the beginning of the book, he says that um, many economists, like um, they fail to see the big picture because uh, a quote, an, because of an intricate network of logical fallacies that mutually support themselves. So, I mean, I'd love to break that down if we can. We can break that down. Let's go for it. <laughs> um, so, 
like, let's first start with like what a logical fallacy is. Um, probably a lot of people know, but really simply, um, it's the idea that you use logic to come to like the wrong conclusion. And because you are using logic, you think you came to the right conclusion. So like one example that's given is like, you wake up in the, in the morning and you look outside and everything's wet. And you're like, well, it must have rained. It's the, raining is the only thing that could have made everything wet. But you were here in the city. Um, what if a fire hydrant exploded and literally sprayed everything? So here we came to the wrong conclusion. We used logic to come to it, but we came to the wrong conclusion. So, I mean, what ha Henry Hazlitt argues in this book, Economics in One Lesson, is, is that essentially there's this network of logical fallacies that mutually support each other and obscure the truth. So that, that's, that's kind of the takedown of Keynesian economists. And he goes through like lots of different examples of how they might do that. And it's, it's, it's worse because they all compound on each other. And have these logical fallacies been built up and maintained their position in Keynesian economics as mainstream economics because of incentives? Yes, absolutely. That's part of it. Um, but it's also just a logical trap, right? Like you can kind of almost understand how you'd come to that conclusion that everything was wet, it must have rained. So it's like, yes, the, the incentives make it worse, but I'm saying it's, it's also easy to make these mistakes. Okay, and before we get into some examples of that, are there any things that Keynesian and Austrians agree on? Um, I don't know if I've studied this stuff well enough to say that. <laughs> I mean, they agree that supply and demand is a is kind of a fundamental law. Uh, I think that you know that one they're two can do two sides of the same coin. They're connected intrinsically, right? Okay, and why do you think Austrian economics has failed to be anything more than? Uh, a niche school of economics mainly appreciated by libertarians? That's a better question. And I think that is due more to incentives. Um, you know, there was, there was a passage in the book, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but uh, it was something along the lines of that, you know, economists, when they, let's say, let's say there's a, a special interest group of some kind that wants to institute some kind of policy. And um, it will it'll benefit them, right? Let's say they'll get government funding for this, you know, their group, right? It could be a literally an industry or whatever. Um, and they, because they can, you know, maybe petition the government or, you know, lobby the government to get this thing passed, they employ all these experts and Keynesian economists to support their position. And they start outlining some policy and, and, and why they think it should be done and why it's better for society. And he, he comes with the idea that there's like some, some writer, some journalist or whatever would see this and say, that's so laughably bad, I won't even respond to it. Um, but they employ these people for years because the, the payoff of getting this policy enacted is so powerful that by the time um, they, the, the argument is I'll come and it's getting close to actually being passed, the, the writer now comes to respond to it and he can't even keep up with all the uh, arguments and, and charts and graphs that they've drawn. To, so yeah, I, I do think it's kind of an incentives problem. Do you think if we tried to uh, map a school of economics to how we operate as individuals within our home, how we tend to manage our own kind of finances and bank balances. Do you think we're all, because we tend to use logic. And, and I've brought up a couple of times a recent example is that we've been talking a lot about government overspending. Uh, especially in the UK, this is highly relevant because uh, I'm based there. And after making the show with Dan Tarby highlighted that 
the government spends 120 billion a year on uh, debt interest, and currently the national debt's increasing by 100 billion a year. So becoming kind of like increasingly aware of debt. But I always say, like, if I had access to a money printer in my bedroom at home, like, you know, keep printing money to buy whatever I want, my Lambo, my house, whatever I wanted to go and get, and no one would know, Mm -hmm. but it would have this kind of like microscopic marginal effect on everyone else. Would I use it? And like, I could see times when I'd use it, right? I don't have that at home. I have to operate with a correct economic model for my family. I have to balance the books. I have to be able to pay my mortgage. If I take a loan, I have to be able to pay it back. Everything I do has to be logical. Do you think we're naturally Austrian economics within our home, uh, economists in our home environment? Yes, but, you know, I think the scale of these things matters a lot. Um, For example, I'm actually really into communism, at the scale of a, of a family, right? Yeah. Have you ever heard this thing before? Yeah, where it's I'm like, a communist yeah. at home. And then you get up to each level. And I, I think one of the problems we have in society is that government has just gotten just too big. It's just onerous and it's like this giant beast and you can't even like turn it off because it's there's too many pieces to it. And, and like you say, the big red button, turning that off is then catastrophic as well. And the same thing with central banking, turning that off would be like 2008 slash 1929 and all these problems ensue. So... I, I think the scale is really important on that discussion. Um, but as, as far as like logic, I think we, I think everybody uses logic, right? Um, it's, it's, it's the tough thing is to um, not only just avoid these, you know, logical traps, these logical fallacies, but to do the work to consider all of the consequences of our actions. And that's one of the, the things that um, Henry gets to in the book a lot uh, as Hazlitt. He says that, you know, that the, the world is full of all of these so-called economists who in turn are full of schemes for getting something for nothing. And it's the idea that like, we'll enact this one policy, but then there's all these like, you know, kind of butterfly effects down the line that like, in order to use all the logic to trace all of the effects of these one policy, that's just too much work. And and, and that's boring anyway. I'd rather be, you know, a rhetorical politician and say, I can do this one thing and it's going to save this one group. And that group is like, yay, awesome. And then we kind of forget about all the other groups and how it affects them. Because we don't fully understand or appreciate the cause and effect. Absolutely. Um, and because also the people are making these decisions, the people in government, and by the way, I'm becoming more and more anti-government. Uh, I'm still pro-democracy. I'm anti the current state of democracy. And... What's become a lot more obvious now is the incentive structure within the within government right now is that it's designed in such a way that they don't really suffer the consequences of the decisions they make. They're incentivized to retain power and retain power. I mean, I watched this great uh, series on YouTube recently about bonds being the biggest scam. And then essentially all we do is from election to election, we go from one party to another promising things which they can't afford and can't pay for. Mm. Because if they were going to make the correct promises, they'd be saying, well, we need to cut spend. You know, we're going to have to, like in the UK, we should cut the NHS and we should cut Social Security. Nobody's going to vote for that party. Right. So we continue, to, we continue to vote for the death spiral. That's what we vote for. And I think that is the problem is that the, the people who are making this decision with government aren't bound by the consequences of the things they do. Absolutely. And, you know, I... I one of the things like the, the term I, I came up with after reading books like Henry Hazlitt's is um, the idea of whack-a-mole policymaking, where you make one policy 
And it's for the same reasons we outlined, um, it affects some other group somewhere else. And then you have to make another policy. So like in the 1930s, they were trying to like save the farmers and they did all these things to um, farms and prices and like subsidies. And, and it caused all these other problems that like, oh, well now they had to like change the prices of industrial chemicals to, to keep the farmers afloat. And then, and then like you, you have these tariffs happen. So like, oh, we have to do tariffs on the industrial chemicals. And then that causes other countries to like retaliate with other tariffs. And it's like it, it creates this web of of problems so it's it, it's very difficult um to you know it, it's it's not like everything's a zero-sum game but it is kind of a way that everything affects everything in the economy and when you when you take from somewhere else you're, you're when, when you give to somebody you're, you're kind of taking from somewhere else and we just don't always consider those other things and, and it's funny as you mentioned like um that you're kind of getting more anti-government um and yet, like I know you say sometimes on the podcast, you're like a reluctant statist. Well, believe it or not, Henry Hazlitt, like while he makes a lot of arguments against what governments do and he shows a lot of like kind of mistakes that you know, governments and policymakers make, he actually himself was not like a hardcore anarcho-capitalist. And in the book, he says like having a minimum level of government. So like maybe Stefan Levera wouldn't be very happy with this guy. But um, I think that's fine. Like, I think the points that he's trying to make are so salient that I, I like, I'm not even concerned with that part of the conversation of whether or not government should exist. I just think it's, it's great to kind of examine these things and, and try to understand how we could, um, you know, what, what really are the problems with the world? Cause I think a lot of it comes down to these, these policy decisions and, and these, uh, butterfly effects. Yeah. I mean, the, the reluctant status position comes from that, uh, pretty much every part of the world that doesn't have democracy has tyranny. Yeah. And so that's not to say we can't improve on democracy, but it's not wanting to slip into tyranny. And it's having that ability that I can go down to Downing Street, where a parliament is, and I can hold up a sign saying our prime minister is a fraud, or our prime minister, you know, like any combination of insulting words, I can protest outside government. I have free speech with certain limitations, which we're aware of because I have a lawsuit. But, like, we have that. And you have that essentially here in the U.S. I believe it's always under attack. I mean, it's under attack in the U.K. at the moment. The right to protest is always under attack. But we have that. And so that's my position. But but that's not to say that democracy is not fragile right now. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm becoming more. I think I've become more anti-government because I think it's been. A, I think democracy has been allowed to slide into uh, benefiting the elected over the electorate, and the electorate have not retained enough control. We need to chop a few heads off. Oh, well, that's not the arguments that are made in the book. But no, <laughs> <laughs> it's l- listen. Like I am kind of more towards the the spectrum where. I th- I've been trying to at least entertain the idea of what um, what society would look like without governments. And, you know, I think like some of the arguments he makes in this book, although he's not making that argument, um, what is the most difficult part about this conversation to even have in the first place is to imagine what could be that isn't. And, and this sounds like such a simple concept. It sounds like such a simple paradigm. Just, oh, well, you're just imagining other things. But 
like, you know, like what would the society look like without a government is, is, is a very, like, that's really what he's um, imagining with like every single policy that he kind of goes through in this book. He's saying, well, what else could have been? So like the Brooklyn bridge, we built the Brooklyn bridge. It's, it's this great giant, it's massive, it's beautiful. The London bridge in London, right? Like it connects two places. It's awesome. Right. But like, what could society have instead? Um, and there's also like, there's the old libertarian trope about my roads, right? Like who will build the roads if we didn't have a government? And, you know, I, I've made the argument before. We, we as kids grew up watching the Jetsons and having flying cars. Well, what if we, because we spent all this money on, on roads and, and there's all these messed up incentives that the roads end up costing all this money, what if as a society we could have already gotten to the point where we had flying cars today if we didn't invest so much money in all these government roads? Like that's, that's harder to do to make these imaginations. You need this conscious... Uh, effort of the imagination to imagine what else could be. Well, it's a bit like if you look at what's happened with NASA up until probably around 1971 or whatever the date is. But like, you know, innovation at NASA slowed down mm. and it's been outcompeted by Elon Musk. What he's done crushed it. Absolutely. 100x cheaper, right? Yeah. Because the yeah. private, yeah, reusable rockets, the private sector's proved it. Right. Yeah. We got, uh, we got uh, Concorde in, was it the 70s we got Concorde? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and you know that fleet has been now retired, mm -hmm. and we don't have uh, supersonic air travel anymore. Right. Uh, we have large or efficient, uh, uh, yeah, what is it, seven seven eight sevens and a three? We've got an a three eighty, but the a three eighty's been retired, yeah. so it's the a three fifty. Or yeah, so so we haven't had that innovation, and something's happened with the money which you can point to as being one of the things, potentially. I mean, you would. You'd say, I've done that. <laughs> in 1971. That was the first show we ever made, dude. Yes, yes, it was. People should go and listen to that, the What the Fuck Happened in 1971. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, and I think I'm, we should save this for the end of the, the discussion sure. because I believe you will always have government. It's just what is the shape of that government. I think a great example. Are you watching uh, The Last of Us at the moment? Oh, no. I've heard so many good Zombie things, apocalypse. Though. Yeah. And what happens in the zombie apocalypse? groups of people end up coming together and within that you have leaders and you end up having some functioning form of right. leadership which is essentially some form of government i think you will always have some form of centralization people uh choosing to build some form of governance for a way of groups of people to operate together yeah so it's it's what do you get it's funny because like you remember when you were we were kind of talking about on the podcast, I say we, but like you guys are on the podcast, we're talking about like free private cities. And I think you were talking to one of these gentlemen and you were like, so there's no taxes there. And he's like, well, there's these fees that you pay. And you're like, well, isn't, isn't that like taxes? That's a tax. like, yeah, it's, it's a fucking tax. There's somebody that's kind of in charge. So it's like, it's, but are the incentives different? And yeah. that's the question. So, right. Well, that's my problem with democracy at the moment. The incentive model's broken because people realize, huh, holy shit, like we can print all this money and like, we don't have yeah. to deal with the consequences. Definitely. And that's and why... We're, but we're still like, now we're like, oh, wait, we do have to deal with the consequences. Well, yeah, in different ways. But yes. there's such a lag on those consequences. Yes. Like the high inflation now is essentially been, you could say it's been 12 to 14 years in the making from the financial crisis. But I think the financial crisis made people realize, hey, we can just print money yeah. and kind of, it's okay. We can just print more. We can do more QE until they ran out of bullets. But... Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. We should come back to that at the end because I think that's back. a that's a that's a good way. But in terms of lo lo these logical fallacies, wh what would you say are the 
kind of primary logical fallacies or example logical fallacies of Keynesian economics, which people don't really address or should be addressing? Well, so, I mean, instead of like actually answering that directly, what he does in the book is he starts with this like seemingly like simple um, logical fallacy called the broken window, which is one you'll hear about a lot if you kind of get into this. I remember. Yeah, you've heard of it before. Yeah. And and just like I think it's it's good to just kind of explain it for folks so they just can kind of see one of these things happen because it's I don't think it's like this particular example but then he like he uses this as like an archetype to then show like how all these other things are actually just different forms of this broken window fallacy but the the broken window is just the fact that like let's say this this we we're here in this pub right here and some little kid runs through and he throws a bro a brick through the window and he breaks the window um, that. Now the owner, uh, Tom, right, of PubKey, or he's, I think, one of the guys, um, he now has to pay a glazier, the guy who makes windows, to come and fix the window. And he used to pay, you know, what, 100, 200 bucks or whatever to the window. At the time the book was written, it was like 50 bucks, but, you know, inflation, right? But regardless, so that, that, fit, that 200 bucks now goes into the pocket of the window guy. And that to, the, the window guy, you know, some of that's going to be his cost of materials and his labor, but then he's going to take some of that as profit and he's going to go spend that at the baker and then blah, 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 on and on. That money goes through the economy. So this brick going through this window has stimulated the economy, has it? Well, what we forgot to consider, here's the logical fallacy, is we forgot to consider but Tom now has 200 bucks less that he cannot invest in a, you know, a new higher-end liquor or bring in a new um, musical act to bring more business in. And then when he can't spend that money on the new musical act, well, that musician doesn't have that same money in his pocket and he can't now buy a new guitar. And, and that goes on and on and on the other direction. So like, that's the logical fallacy is that because we were focused on and, and this is also kind of shows you this like zero summiness of the economy that wherever a dollar is taken and given, it's, it's, it's this give and take that you can't really avoid. Right. So the logical fallacy is what you're talking about here is government stimulating the economy by uh, taking uh, money through ta taxation and using that to create public jobs. Yes. And like one of the examples, this is... I'll try to challenge myself because I think it's a harder one. I think it's one that you'd probably push back on, Peter, is like public housing, for example. So this is a tough one because it's like, well, you know, homeless folks or like really low income folks, we want them to have a place to live, right? Like I'm, a, I'm an empathetic person. You know, I might be an anarcho-capitalist in most respects, but like I'd still want people to have a place to live. So let's divert some um, capital somehow, right? Because that's like any form of government policy that's like making a public housing exist is diverting capital from somewhere else to make into this public housing. And like he, he lays out some arguments, but what the thing that stuck with me that he said about this particular topic, he said it deprives capital of the liberty of choice. So let's say these poor folks that like, they're very poor and they need a place to live. Instead of being able to choose where they live, now they have to basically take the public housing option. It's it's, it's free or it's very subsidized. So every other option would be way too expensive. And that's all there is. So not well, it, Isn't there the option of living on the street? There is, yes. So they have those two choices. Yes, definitely. But what I'm saying is like for the, for the option of taking housing, they only now have really the choice of the public housing. Yeah, but isn't that a benefit to them? 
Yes, I would say it certainly is a benefit to them. And can that not drive productivity? So one of the issues that uh, the cycle that homeless people get into is, yeah. say if you're homeless and you want to get a job, yes. you get asked, where do you live? Mm-hmm. You need to have an address. You need to have a bank account. You need to have clothes and be able to shower. And so a lot of people get trapped in a, a cycle of not being able to escape homelessness because they cannot get work. So putting them into the into a public housing allows them to have an address, a shower, and the, the basics for going to apply for a job. So that could lead to new productivity. Absolutely. And, and I'm all for philanthropy. But I want, so like another kind of way to approach this like situation is if that public housing didn't exist and society was much, much wealthier, like let's give the benefit of doubt to the anarcho-capitalists or like yep. at least like very minimal government people and say that society is much, much more wealthy because we're more efficiently using capital and capital is being allocated more effectively than uh, those folks in those situations um, would have better opportunities, prices would be lower, and maybe because people in general are wealthier, they would be more likely. Here's the other problem, that not only just like the people that do philanthropy would have more wealth to do philanthropy, but also because there is this public housing thing already, wealthy people are like, well, why would I put even more money into like giving people a place to live? The government already does it. Is it not a fallacy to assume how people will deploy their capital in such a scenario, how do we know? How do we how do we not know that instead they would not deploy their capital on building uh, large fences around their citadels to protect themselves from the peasants? I don't, and and that's the challenge of this exercise is that again it takes a, a lot of imagination yeah. to know what would have existed, and I think that's the hard part to do. And I told you this is a challenging particular point. So, well, so that, that's why it's always important, I think, to to look at the, the utopia and the dystopia and yep. just compare and contrast what, what may or may not be. Absolutely. But also, look, look what happens what, what happens in the world. Uh, you know, the most developed Western liberal democracies tend to have good public services to help the poorest and most unfortunate. And when you go to the countries that don't tend to have them, what do they have instead of uh, public services? They're favelas and slums mm-hmm. where you know, there's less regulation on, on people building, you know, shacks for themselves to live in. I've seen it in India and Venezuela, all through South America. Whereas someone like here, where people try to live in a tent, you get someone like Austin, you actually, there's laws against doing that. So you get people trapped out of even being able to do that. So I, th- I think it's important to look at both. Absolutely. And, and, and I think for some people, it's kind of like, well, what is the balance? Yeah, what's, you know, I think there is a measure of a civilized society, what it does to protect the, the most vulnerable and uh, the poorest, but at the same time, that that will put up an argument to people that who believe all taxation is theft. That that some has to be through taxation, and it's a tricky one because I can go all the way down that path of taxation with somebody and eventually get to the point where I'm like, yeah, the government uh, deployment of capital is completely inefficient, and I'm with them every time. And I think to Ben's point there as well is like you say that it's a measure of society how well they look after the needy, but society aren't looking after the needy. Like that's being taken out of society's hands and the government are doing that without any input from society as, as a whole. Hmm. No, I disagree. I think both happen. I think food banks is a great example. Mm-hmm. Food banks is society mm-hmm. within the UK choosing, uh, I assume you have it here as well, to uh, voluntarily on a charitable basis you know, collect food and be able to distribute that to the people who are most needy. Um, so I think both both happen, and I think that's a great example of the fact that 
you do get voluntary and charitable uh, organisations who will support the most needy in society. But well, perhaps a better example would be uh, wheelchair access in the UK. You know, the rules around if you're building any kind of uh, right. public use property, it has to be wheelchair accessible. Or private. Yeah, didn't you yeah. run into that with your house? With yeah, the- and yeah, but that's when you get into the stupid side of things. <laughs> where yeah, so yeah, I bought like just for anyone listening, I bought a house for the house to be signed off by the the Bedfordshire biz, uh, building regulations. Uh, it had to have wheelchair access, but as soon as that signed off and I own the property, I can remove the wheelchair access, which I have done because it's completely pointless because yeah. it's on a gra- gravel track, the gravel track. So again, look. You can see the stupidity on both sides. You can see the benefit and then the stupidity of obviously some morons made that decision without thinking thinking it through. Yeah. And we can get into inflation and how that has dragged the poor down in society and all these other things and how these other compending problems that like have put these folks in the situation. But you Go, know. Going back to the, the window, um, yeah. so that broken window that's cost Thomas $200 to fix, he cannot spend that on something else. That right. money's gone. But the guys fix the window has that money to then go and deploy that capital. So the, yes. the, the capital can st- still be deployed. Is the issue, main issue here is not the fact that where or, or how the money is being deployed. It's the fact that one person, person deploying capital gets to arbitrarily, arbitrarily choose how much to take off productive people and to print more if they need it, which distorts the monetary system. Is that not the real problem? No, I think I think what he's trying to point out is the the idea that when we look at the situation of the brick getting thrown the wind through the window, and we say, look, it has stimulated the economy by saying now that money went there and there and there uh, to the the glassmaker and then whoever he spends the money on, to forget that it has taken money out of Tom's pocket. That's the fallacy is that we've kind of forgot that thread of the thing by saying it stimulated the economy. But so uh, when you extrapolate that to ideas of government stimulating the economy, how does the government really stimulate the economy? Well, what they do is they, there's two things they could do. They can lower taxation. So people have more money to spend. Liz Trust tried that recently and (laughs) crashed the economy. Didn't work. They can increase taxation and choose to redeploy their capital themselves, Mm -hmm. or they can uh, operate a program of QE to inject capital into the economy to stimulate it. And I guess the, the point is we can go through each of those and consider the cause and effect. Right. And I think another point that Hazlitt's trying to make, and that's a good extrapolation of, of this fallacy, Peter, because I think what he's trying to say is you can't actually stimulate the economy. What you can just do is divert capital from one place to another. And when you do that, you get back into that efficiency problem because now we're taking people. So if we stimulate the X part of the economy, then now people are going to be more incentivized to go into some industry that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. So maybe they're not apt to do that. And just in general, it's less efficient. But, but really the point he's trying to make is that you're, you're, ta- you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. This show is brought to you by Ledger. And now with everything that's happened in Bitcoin over the last few months, it again highlighted the importance of self-custody and why Ledger is such an important company for the industry. Now, I have been using a Ledger Nano S since 2017, since when I got back into Bitcoin. And I'm still using that same Ledger Nano S now. I still got I literally got it here set with me right now. Now, with Ledger, you have industry-leading security built into the Ledger device. 
And also, they have got a new device coming soon. It's called a Stacks. It's totally awesome. I've pre-ordered mine. But the Ledger Nano S has been the leading hardware device for people to store their Bitcoin for years now. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, fast withdrawals, and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. And from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer. I've been using Ledin since they became a sponsor, and I absolutely love the service. Now, if you want to find out more about this, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Or you can stimulate the economy, but there are other consequences. So QE, yes, can, right. QE exactly. can stimulate the economy. Like it's been proven to stimulate the economy. Well, but it has, well, it has tail, tail effects, which may be inflation, which you're, getting, you're robbing for Peter to pay Paul, but on a time lag. Okay, I'm stimulating it now, but there's a cost later on. I think the point you're trying to make is, I'm, I'm not going to argue with the point you're trying to make, but I, the, the QE thing is, is not... It, that's Jeff Snyder would disagree with you on the QE part of it. That QE, QE is just some asset swap, and it's more of a psychological trick to try to keep banks lending. But the point you're trying to make is still valid. You're, you're saying is deficit spending, essentially. Yes, yeah, deficit spending. Yeah, and I think that's a better way to try to make the point. And yes, absolutely, it can heat up some industries, right? Like, where are you going to spend that money, though? That's my point, right? that where are we now stimulating and, and what, what that's doing is it's taking away from somewhere else. That's all. Just to say it very simply. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no, this is fair. So, like, can you give me a modern comparison? Because the window's fine, but do we have a modern comparison for, for that? Yeah, so he talks about... Um, the, I mean, he talks about the farmer, and this is maybe not the greatest modern comparison because it's like a little bit outdated. But like, I thought it's still an interesting kind of um, a- anecdote here. He talks about a, a farmer getting loans um, either directly from the government or guaranteed by the government, and that's kind of really important there because um, I kind of attributed this similar to student loans where we see the government is guaranteeing these student loans. And then we can also talk about like, the lender of last resort, the central bank, is in a way kind of guaranteeing all loans, right? Because if all the loans go bad, well, what happened in 2008? Well, all of a sudden, they injected all this capital. So th- the idea that the government is not just giving loans directly, and I don't think like we see that as much in our daily life as when this book was written, but that they're being guaranteed by the government. 
And like, here's some of the fallacies that we would say, well, the loan basically costs us nothing, right? It's, um, it, it, it's self-liquidating um, because, and it's just money's free, so who cares, right? Um, but what's actually being lent here is not the money. It's what the farmer uses that money for. And this is weird. So like, let's say he buys a new tractor to expand his operations, right? Um, he's going to be more productive because of that tractor. That's great. But we're, we're actually, we're not lending the money. We're lending the tractor. And so that, that's taking it away from somebody else who may have otherwise, again, we're saying that this loan was deemed by the government. Somebody else may have been more, like, be more qualified to have this tractor and be more, even more productive than, let's say, our farmer John in this example. Um, and like if the government didn't exist or hadn't stepped in in this uh, loan case, then where would Farmer John get the money for the tractor? Had they not existed, well, you'd have to go down to the local bank and the bank would do their due diligence or maybe they even know John personally, you know, and, and they would decide and they would, you know, maybe more efficiently allocate the capital. And if they didn't more efficiently allocate the capital, what would happen? Their loan would go bad and they would lose the money. So there's that incentive problem coming back again. What happens when a government loan goes bad? I was like, oh, whatever, we'll just print some more, right? So... It's allowing the market. What you're saying is, it's better to have the free market issue the loans, yes, than the government to issue the loans, yes, because it goes back to the point. That, I mean, but I think we always come back to the point is that the the government can always print the way out their mistakes. The, they they don't face the consequences of their decisions in the same way the market does. Yeah, and that's what's really interesting about this book, Peter. Is it was written in 1946 or 56 or something. He does go back to it in like 1978, I think, but most of the, you know, the WTF happened in 1971 paradigm hadn't really been understood well, I think, by economists um, and certainly not by Hazlitt because he doesn't even talk about that. But what Hazlitt's given us is the tools to now apply his logic to understand that very problem that you're talking about. This one effect of Nixon closing the gold window or we can trace it back to 1913 and 1929 and all these other things, you know, bimetallism, whatever. All of those things had all these trickle-down downstream effects that now are affecting the incentives of the government itself, right? So I think you're already applying the logic in this book. Which it's, you know, and, and this is why I'm becoming more anti-government because of what I'm realizing is that it's because of these incentives that we are seeing these kind of like hints of slipping into tyranny within Western liberal democracies yeah. as they try to retain control of this this re-incentivized system. You know, that's why we see, we've seen in the UK attacks on your freedom, such as rights to protest. Right now, we have masses of protests in the UK with regards to wages by public sector workers, primarily, because pr public sector workers are in pay bands. And if you're in a pay band, it's not like, you know, if one of you guys wants a pay rise, you call me up and say, let Peter want a pay rise. And it's like, okay, yes or no, you know, it depends how the company's doing. But I make an individual decision. Mm. You're in a pay band. If a nurse wants a pay rise, Every nurse has to have a pay rise in the country. Therefore, they have to protest through unions and they have to strike through unions. And we're seeing masses of that at the moment. And by the way, I support these people. You know, these are hardworking people on the front lines of some of these public services. You know, whether it's... Uh, I'm sympathetic to nurses. I'm sympathetic to fire workers. I'm sympathetic to paramedics. I'm sympathetic to people working on the train tracks. I'm sympathetic to all these people working hard who have seen their purchasing power eroded by inflation caused by the government. I'm completely sympathetic. Right. But they can only protest as a group and they can only uh, campaign as a group and they have to be, you know, they have to strike. And we're now seeing the government start to putting new rules against protesting. 
yeah. in the UK? Yeah, because, oh, and you know, it's starting That's with, scary. well, they're starting with, um, it's the uh, paramedics and the nurses, because they're saying this is a danger to uh, patient care. Right. Yeah, it's a risk to patient care. But they, but what they're doing, they're classing their... Uh, so we have something called a picket line. I don't know if you have mm -hmm. that here. Picket line is... And so the paramedics were saying, look, if it's a heart attack, we will respond. We will go we'll, we'll go and respond to that. You know, if it's somebody... If it's not you know, a life-threatening condition, we won't. We have to protest. So it's really tricky, right? And, and the UK government are now trying to dis, uh, to ban what they call like disruptive protests. Yeah. But like that's the point of every protest is to disrupt. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, those people throwing tins of soup on artwork or gluing themselves to the road, by the way, I think they're fucking idiots and right. they're completely wrong. I absolutely support their right to protest. <laughs> right. But not destroy property. Yeah. Look, I don't think you should be destroying artwork. But like if you, if you feel so strongly about this that you want to glue yourself to the road, great. If you're wrong, let's get out and let's debate this, right? But I, I support your right to protest. You have freedom of speech, but yeah. not freedom of Campbell's tomato soup. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't, 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 with you. don't go and destroy important uh, works of artistic history, right? But at the same time, what I'm saying, that, like that is triggering the government to want to limit certain protests. And some, <laughs> let's be honest about this, some of the most important protests in history have required civil disobedience for them to be heard. Yes. We can think of, of course, like the Martin Luther King protests and people getting sprayed with water cannons yeah. and what they were doing was illegal, right? Like, yeah. You know? The civil rights protests here in the US were some of the most important protests in the world. You can go to South Africa, what happened during the apartheid era. Like there are so many solid examples where civil disobedience is required, but we're seeing attacks on that. We're seeing a slip into CBDCs. We're seeing people arrested for tweets, mm. like literal tweets, people knocking their door. That that is a slip into tyranny and a place where... We say in the UK, we're a civilized society, one of the most, you know, we support free speech. So I'm seeing that, and that is a downstream effect of no consequence of, of uh, printing money, no consequence to the government, which is why now I'm the most reluctant status I've ever been, because it's fucking broken. You know, you talked about these wage bans. Um, for me, uh, what I'm hearing when you say that is these are all just forms of minimum wage. Um, they're, they're different minimum wages and maybe it's, it's minimum and maximum. If you want to call it these wave bands, like you're, that's what you get. Right. But I, I'm, I'm very much against price fixing your wage. Right. Which is weird because like you said, I'm also sympathetic to folks that have purchasing power has been destroyed by inflation. Right. So like there's, there's, there's multiple threads here. One of which like Danny brought to my attention that I want to touch on, but, but first, like it's, it's always good to like start with the whole the real minimum wage is zero. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. So do you know, like it means like essentially if, if I raise the minimum wage in New York City from, I don't know what it was or two, but like let's say we raise it from 15 to $20, right? Now, Tom, like that's trying to pay somebody some wage, right? Like he literally now can't, because his wages are, his margins are probably pretty thin. I worked in the restaurant industry, I know. Um, that might be just enough that he now has to like literally let somebody go or he'll take some hours from this person here and take some hours from that person there. And, and that's what like that's what the saying is trying to say is that the real minimum wage is that you might get your job lost, right? 
And like, you can kind of go into the other side of it where you say like, well, if we didn't have a minimum wage, maybe some immigrant worker from, you know, like pick the most poorest country you can possibly think of comes here and they can for $5 an hour do some job that it's illegal to pay somebody $5 an hour, but they would be happy to take this money. Or maybe somebody who's elderly and just wants to work 10 hours a week and is happy to take $6 an hour. And that's like, if that's mutually agreed upon, then they should be happy to do that. Yeah. Look, don't take jobs away from people who want to do it, willing to be paid that amount. We also need to be cognizant that exploitation can then happen. Well, I, I think that's an interesting point because the, the part that Danny saw in the book that was related to this is actually, it's, it's, it's related to um, self-image of the folks that are taking the minimum wage. And this, this takes a, like a little bit of kind of thinking to get to. Imagine that you worked some minimum wage job. Pick pick any in your head. Probably the things that are coming into your head already is like grocery store, McDonald's, yeah. or whatever. And it's not just that it's one of those jobs, right? It's like you know, if somebody asks you what you do for a living, you're like, you're not you're not like the first thing you want to say is I I love working on the fry later. Like it's that's your self image. But the point is actually slightly different. It's that well. I'm already making a minimum wage. Look, why do I care about this job at all? I can just go get another one for minimum wage. And I think when you really pull that thread out, you start to realize that it's demeaning to the person to even receive the minimum wage because they don't care. They can just go get another job at a minimum wage. And, and it also like, I'm only at the minimum wage. Like this is terrible. I mean, like, unless you literally just got out of high school, you're 14 years old and you're getting the minimum wage and that kid's probably happy to get it. <laughs> kind of like the person coming from that poor country. It's to really extrapolate the effect of that, I think is, is tough. And it, it, Danny, when he brought that up to me and I was like, oh, wow, I think I really missed that through on my, on my mm. read through of this book. I think it's really powerful. Yeah, that's, that is a really good but point. But you even, like in Australia, they have very high minimum wages and you see that sort of detriment to society that you're, you're, you were talking about a minute ago. Like if it's a public holiday, for example, if you work in a coffee shop or something and you're on minimum wage, it might be, I don't know, $20, $22 an hour or whatever it is. But then on a public holiday, they have to be paid two and a half times pay. I think it's two and a half times. So like you're paying 50 plus dollars an hour for someone who is like the minimum wage. So these cafes and these bars and restaurants, they just shut. And so like society or whatever miss that whole industry on those days for the year. And it's crazy. Well, look, competition comes down to managing cost, efficiency, pricing. And if you're creating a base cost that prices people out... Of doing this because, like, at that point, it's like, well, it's $10 now for a coffee. I'm just going to make mine at home in the morning. Whereas it's like $3, I would have buy it. And at $3, you might have, you might have like 10 jobs there. Yeah. And we'll put this up on the screen, Peter, when we run the podcast. But this is one of my favorite memes about the minimum wage and about inflation, where uh, I, I don't remember the, exactly what it says on there, but <laughs> I'll read it. In 1964, <laughs> the minimum wage was five 90% silver quarters. In 2021, 590% silver quarters have a melt value of $23.34. We don't need minimum wages. We need sound money. Because that's the, that's the wage they're calling for is like $25 an hour. That's literally the call today is we need a $25 minimum wage. Boom. That's what it used to be in sound money. Yeah. So again, just to reiterate the point, the only thing I worry about with uh, no minimum wages is exploitation. So we have a problem in the UK. It's not a huge problem, but we have a problem which is called modern day slavery, mm -hmm. whereby people will bring over a number of immigrants to work in the UK, whether it's picking strawberries, working in a biscuit factory, they all tend to live in a house together um, and uh, they collect 
the wages from and pay these people, but they pay them pitiful amounts, like pitiful amounts. And these people can't speak the local language. They can't leave. They can't get out of that system. So, you know, I don't know if no minimum wage makes that worse, or maybe the minimum wage actually makes that worse. Let's incentivize these people. But like there, there are times where you could have exploitation. And I think that comes to the, the bigger question that will come to the end is like, what is the role of government? Like, what are the things that they can do and they do do well? Like, if anything... Well, that's a tough... I don't know about that specific situation, Peter, but there's a really similar one here in the United States. Have you ever heard of a coyote? Maybe. Go on. So we have a lot of folks that come up from South America. Conditions are very poor to work in South America. And it's also hard for people to come here legally. Um, So one of the things that happens is they get smuggled in um, by these coyotes, they call them, right? The coyote. And... In the process of that smuggling, there is often an indentured servitude exploitation component of it. And I wonder if that's a really a problem that's created by, you know, first of all, they're screwed up government, right? Because like stuff's so poor there probably because of corruption, money printing. We saw how in Venezuela, Argentina, like it goes on in Brazil. It's like crazy, right? Like economic imperialism, economic imperialism. We can get into the World Bank and the IMF. So like that's the... That's the problem that created the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Or like we can look at the immigration situation, right? Like if if these were free private cities, maybe there'd be like this effective way to enter that you don't need a coyote. I don't know. So like it, it's interesting to – I think this is kind of an unseen part of it because we're looking at, yes, here's this one little thing where this person's getting exploited. But why did they get into the situation where they probably entered voluntarily at least at first to get into this situation? They weren't like literally scooped up and like – you know, taken over as slaves. Like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's often a case where they get themselves into the situation and, but why were they there in the first place? I don't know. Uh, again, I'm not sure that specific situation. You're yeah. About. With regards to public employment, are there any jobs that you think are good and productive and useful or is all public employment bad? Uh, well, so like, again, my position is you're, you're like a reluctant status. If anything, I'm maybe a reluctant anarcho-capitalist. So what I like to like, I try to view the world as if like, well, what, what could it be without? So when you'd ask me about that question specifically, what I'd say, what I'd try to do in my head is use my logic and my understanding about economics to say, well, how could this be better without that? You know, I'm not saying that, yes, let's definitely abolish this thing right away just because you just said it to me. But what what could we how could we see the world without that thing so that's often what i try to do i'm not perfect at it i'm not a perfect anarcho capitalist but if you picked one i would probably try to dissect it which is what i usually end up doing so so we're kind of the yin and yang of the situation <laughs> that they no you no it's, but it's interesting because yeah. rather than accepting like the utopia you're challenging yourself to yes. think about what what are the downstream risks of this? And it's hard. Yeah. My friends, like, sometimes they're like, sometimes they're super interested in it. And sometimes they're like, wait, so you just think there shouldn't be government? And I'm like, no, no, don't worry about that yet. Like, let's just, like, look at how we could have a smaller government or let's look at, look at the problem with this thing, right? Like, Well, that's that goes back to my one of my first interviews with Eric Voorhees. Right. And he said to me right at the very start, and it stuck with me, <laughs> he said to me, it's not about government or no government. He said, I just want, can we just make it 1% smaller? Please. It gets bigger every year. Yeah. Can we just get 1% smaller? Then 5% smaller. Almost like 
if they had a budget and had to stick to their budget, what what would the impact of yeah? How do we make it more efficient? How do you know? Who knows? Yeah, we we talked about inflation. Uh, we talked about a little bit about prices and kind of incentives there, mm-hmm. and the I I really want to get into two pieces of this. One okay. is, one is the price system. I th- I think I may have done this on your podcast before, but I feel like it's one of these things that bears repeating. Uh, which is the miracle of the price system that 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 nobody in the world knows how to make a pencil. Familiar yeah, with this it. thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that like that there's literally nobody in the world that knows how to pr- like actually make a pencil, and th- like it seems absurd on its face because like it's super easy to make a pencil. You just take wood, you paint it yellow, you just graphite and the metal band. But but it turns out like the wood comes from like one place in the world, and the, the metal has to be like refined from ore. And just to get it out of the ground, you need tools, and you have to actually construct those tools. And like, how do you construct those tools? Like you don't know how to construct the tools, and because you'd have to refine ore again just to get the tools. And like the graphite, like I, I honestly, I've, I've said this talk a bunch of times, and I don't, I still don't know where the graphite comes from. I literally couldn't even tell you to how do you get the graphite to make the pencil. And so like the idea of the miracle of the price system is that it's the actual collective collaboration of thousands of people all around the world to make a single pencil. And it is the prices that signal those folks of what they should be doing. Um, and that it is, there's no one coordinator, one um, central pencil um, a ministry of pencils that tells all these people <laughs> which thing to make that they just kind of all know what to do because if they bid too high with their price of their uh, ingredient for pencils, their wood or their graphite, then people won't buy it. So they have to adjust the price to get to the right place. Um, and, and, and that like the prices coordinate human action kind of globally and societally. And I just think that's such an important concept that like, it's a thread that we can weave into all these, you know, we were talking about how inflation's like, oh, it's like hard on our wages or whatever, but that like the prices guide our actions in every daily life, you know, whether you're going to buy this thing or that thing, which job you're going to take, which house you're going to buy. We were talking about that before yeah. we started the rest uh, the the interview, but. Well, I, the, therefore in that, that is like every time there's government interference, it, I, I'm, going to try and repeat something like uh, Harry Suddock said. It's, they're like the vultures kneeling on the necks of the productive parts of society. Something it was like along that. those lines. Along those lines. Yeah. So if, it's, if they implement tariffs, they are harming one person, one place who can compete in the market for being a, uh, a supplier part of the pencil. Mm. Or if they overtax one company. Like that's why maybe it's become too expensive to build cars in America because of certain things that governments maybe have done. Every time they interfere with the system... You, you get one step farther away from humans um, doing mutually beneficial exchange, which, by the way, is another fallacy that he, he talks about, the fallacy of zero-sum games. You know, I mentioned that, like, everything's zero-sum, where you're taking from one and you're giving to another, robbing Peter to pay Paul. But there's also like, the concept that, like... You know, if I if I sell Danny, you know, my my laptop or my guitar or something, he's not like buying that, that laptop. It's got the fucking shit. I think it's not what bad. the fuck is a ThinkPad? It's a, these are these are really solid laptops, Peter. That's why people buy them. They just last forever. So that's why they always look like crap because they actually last forever. Do, do you want me to get you an Apple? <laughs> no, I like this thing. Um, the fuck is that, Danny? <laughs> I won't be bidding on it. No, <laughs> it looks like something they lo- they use to. To send the first rocket to the moon, but see, this is the very this is the very concept, right? So, like, let's say Danny owned this laptop. Somebody gave it to him, and he doesn't like it, right? He just said he wouldn't bid on it. He would want he would want minimum wage. He'd want minimum wage instead. But I 
I subjectively value the laptop differently than he does so that me giving him the price for this laptop is actually a mutually beneficial exchange. I don't win and he loses. We both win. This is a really important, like it's, again, it seems like one of these really silly things. Like obviously, oh, you both got what you wanted. But like that in any given transaction that we can both win is a really important thing to kind of weave into, again, all of these conversations in this. So I just <laughs> wanted to throw that in. Yeah, no, no. And you said there were two. You said there were two things you wanted to. Um, well, there's the mirage of inflation, right? So you've talked about this on podcast a bunch of times. You always talk about Avix Roy, Avic Roy, um, Avic Roy with the yeah. free op and how he's he's like actually like codified and like charted out how inflation literally affects group uh, different groups of people differently. Well, it has a compounding impact on the poor. We were actually discussing this this morning. I, was, I reread that article this morning. The compounding people should, we'll try and put it in the show notes. There's uh, free op. The Foundation for Equal... Uh, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Yeah, so they're a, they're a think tank uh, trying to <laughs> try to inform government on policy decisions yeah. that give more opportunity to those who need it the most. Ironic that we would bring that up right now. Um, but they wrote this fantastic article with the compounding impact of inflation on the poor. And they said government target 2% inflation. But even that, over you know a stretch of years will, will negatively affect the poorest in society the worst any he said any amount of inflation but so this is the problem right yeah. so like this is why i actually these things kind of all seem like they're disparate right like we were talking about the price system and then we're talking about like mutually beneficial exchange and then i was talking about the mirage of inflation but like I think like we already took one of your problems that you were talking about about the uh, the workers protesting, and I say, well, there's I think there's an inflation component in this thing, and there's like government policy. So it's all these things that are like compounded and working together um, that I I think tend to draw society in directions that aren't beneficial, and it's not always easy to make these connections and and bring them together in the first place. And I think that's that's like one of the concepts that is threaded throughout this book is that the that a policy will often affect one group at the expense of other groups. And that because we know of the unseen, we can't always see what those other groups are. We can't see the bridge that wasn't built because this one was. We can't see uh, these things because they don't exist. We don't see them. You have to use your imagination consciously to see them. And then you have to tie all these things together when you consider any economic or pol political decision that you make. So, What is the alternative here? Like, What is it you're saying we should be working towards? We both have that agreement that the big red button is terrible. I think that came from, I first read about that was Scott Horton, I think on their website, they've got a thing about the big red button. Mm. You know, if you're a libertarian, you can press the big red button and government is immediately gone. Would that be a good or a bad thing? And like, I think a lot of people agree it, it would be bad because of we don't know the consequences of the, the collapse of society, yeah. but whatever. I like the Eric Voorhees approach. Let's let's do a let's do a test. <laughs> let's do a multivariate test. What can we get rid of step by step and reduce the size of government? What what is the ultimate goal here, though? The ultimate goal is what to free everyone up from the constraints of people making decisions if they don't understand the consequences, or is it is it zero government? I I think our yin and yang meet in the middle in exactly the same place. We're both just trying to. Like just like Eric trying to reduce the size of government by yes. 1%, by 2%. And like, I think in us making this podcast, my goal is to just try to show people that like 
there are things that we are probably missing every single time we make a, a, a decision and to like question it. Cause I don't have the hubris to say that I think I know how the world should be. We can take any single government thing you want to go through and we can like literally right now, if you want to and say, well, how could we envision a world without this thing? But I, I'm trying to empower other folks to try to do the same thing and to try to reconsider, you know, every single policy that, that there's probably things that you're not seeing and I'm not seeing either. You know, I, I don't have the, I try to have some humility in trying to say that I don't know everything. Yeah. I'm just careful because the people that are making the policies, I don't think that they're thinking like this. I think they're like, here are the lobbies. And they're like, okay, well, we got to do this. And they just kind of do it. And, and they use rhetoric and they're just like, well, they just want to get elected again. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, it's an, it's an important point, you know, that I, like I take this really seriously right now. It's mm. like, w- what are we trying to educate people? Uh, if you come to this show and you're already a Bitcoin, it's great. You're going to learn a bunch more, hear a bunch of different views. But what if you come come here as a no-coiner? Or what if you come and somebody's not that interested in Bitcoin? I think one of the things I'm trying to trying to move towards is trying to show people that wh- whoever you vote for, on a you you're not going to make a material difference to your life if that party gets in power. They're most likely going to negatively affect your life. Yeah. Yeah. Just at a different measure from one to the other. But the problems we have in society now, whether it's the US, UK, whatever, is caused by successive governments from different sides of the political spectrum because what they're telling you're going to do is going to have minimal effect on your life. What they're actually going to do is going to have the severe consequences. But I don't think enough people realize that. They've been sold... You know, they've been sold the myth that vote for this party is going to make your life materially better. It's not. They all do the same thing. They borrow too much money. They put us in too much debt. They cause, they tax us too much. They they steal from the productive parts of society. Like I am there. And I think the only way you're going to have a revolutionary change is enough people wake up to that and reject government as an entity right now, yeah. rather than voting for one or the other. God, I sound like an anarcho-capitalist. You almost do. No, I'm, 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 Jesus, what's happened to me? Um, okay, let, talk, talk to me about AI. Yeah, I think this is a really fun one, and I think it's really relevant that, you know, I think a lot of people are freaking out today. That, look, we had Andrew Yang on the pod. Um, he thinks the AI revolution's coming, and that, like, if we don't give everybody a UEI, we're going to have a, you know just pandemonium in the streets because everybody's job is going to get lost overnight. And like, listen, there are threads of this that are, that are kind of true that like a lot of jobs are going to get replaced or reshaped pretty significantly in ways that like, we're still kind of grappling with today. Like we don't even, we're looking around like Danny and I were having a conversation about AI. It's like, well, dang, this is probably going to replace both of our jobs in like three years or something like that. It's, it's pretty intense stuff, right? Well, look, there's four people in the room right now. Yeah. Whose jobs are replaceable by AI? Pretty much all of them. All of them in one word. You oh, can yeah. make an argument for every single one. Yes. I've gone on to ChatGPT and I said, give me 10 questions to ask Michael Saylor about right. Bitcoin. And do you know what? Some were crap. Yes. There were two or three. I was like, okay, there's threads of that. Yeah. So yeah, you can see on a long enough time frame how that can be replaced. I don't think an AI can be, have as good a British voice as I have. It's true. I mean, that's not yet. <laughs> no, no, but like, least. but you can see that. And there's some people who don't, have you seen the Rogan uh, AI conversations that have been circulating? Oh, no, I saw, it, like, it's AI, like two AIs yeah. talking to each other, but like in the style of Rogan. Yeah. No, I, there was, um, I saw something similar, this generative AI stuff where it's like, 
they were doing um it was called uh nothing forever so you know uh jerry seinfeld this uh the show about nothing Mm -hmm. they had this ai that was like doing jerry seinfeld episodes 24 7 and it was like it was really crappy like quality it looked like really bad animation and the voices were like that robotic this thing and that and like the jokes weren't that funny but it still did exist until like they got shut down for ip violations or whatever This show is brought to you by Casa. Now, whether you've bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person that should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin, it doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it super easy. And getting started is simple. Just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need assistance, it's only a phone call away. And Casa has the best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. And I have been using Casa. I've been using their multi-sig for two years now. I absolutely love it. Now, it is time for you to take financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. But again, I'm only buying right now. We're hodlers. We've seen the bottom of the market. We've seen this through, right? Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You do also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There's also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking a lot more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this is so much easier. So if you want to find out more about this, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Have you heard the AI Nirvana song? No. Holy shit. Is it good? All right. Will it work here? Let's try it. See if you can find it, the AI Nirvana song. I don't think AI is ready to be Peter's therapist yet. <laughs> here, here, all software creates new Nirvana. Oh, okay. Go away. Have you heard this? He's like not saying words. <laughs> told me that was like early yeah you know and i'm released i'd be like yeah okay that's pretty good he's not saying i want to hear the chorus i feel 
just started nodding on that chorus. Wasn't there more? Was there an Amy Winehouse one? I remember that. You know, it's funny because it has his angst, but like a lot of the complaints you hear about the music generated by AI is like it doesn't have the soul. Well, it, it's, so, it's so homogenized, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because it's based on an algorithm, not someone <laughs> right. shooting up a bunch of heroin and just seeing what the fuck comes out. Like, But what I'm saying, this is still... We're in very early AI right. time, right? Yes. Was there an Amy Winehouse yeah, one? Yeah, there's an Amy Winehouse one and a Jimi Hendrix one. It's, it's got to be Amy. This guy, Amy. It already sounds very Amy. Well, you know, I got no idea. Wow. Do you know what I mean? That's good, This one's way better. It's all It's not even my kind of music, but I'm like, kind of rocking to that. I mean better in terms of why like, I'm more believable. Ongoing. Yeah. Trouble is showing. If you had told me that was her, I would have totally believed it. See, the point is, is that, you know, unless you buy into me and want to see me, if you're just listening to audio... I am replaceable. Actually, you probably AI the video. What I'm saying is, in the future, you might have podcast hosts which are AI. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you definitely will. Yeah. And there'll be stuff that you want to listen to. And, you know, there'll be a time where we could finish a show, Jeremy can pack up the audio and video, and we can go to AI, go say, just go and edit that. Yeah. Agreed. You know, you know, every job will be replaceable, especially if you have the robots to move stuff around. I think there's coordination stuff that you still need the humans for you know, coordinate the gas. But like, I think the general point is there are, we are moving into a world where you will need less specialists and some entire jobs will be replaced. And so, so that's a reality. So is that scary? Or? Uh, well, it's, I mean, it just is what it is. Does it make us more, a better, more productive society? Right. And I think that's like, that's where I'd go with this. I, I, I think the only scary thing is if there was a sudden evisceration of an, like a number of jobs because you had suddenly a number yeah. of people were unemployed. We know, you know, if you have a sudden crash in an economy, you know, it gets desperate. The Great Depression was a desperate time. Like people couldn't eat. Right. And so there, there is a, a reality of what that means, but I don't see that happen. I think this is going to be a gradual transition. Right. And I think for somebody like, you know, Somebody like me, well, like actually, Peter, I don't even know if you know that we already use machine learning in our production process. Every single show gets actually a significant boost from machine learning. I don't, what, descriptions? Nope. No, before the chat GPT, we've already been using this. So like, have you ever synced the audio to a video manually? Yeah. On your editing video. You need the clap. You need the clap. And like sometimes like this camera gets off or there's multiple cameras. So like the clap doesn't even help you. So you have to do it by, I've done it by eye a bunch of times. We've been using, uh, actually Jez wanted to buy, uh, Jeremy, our camera guy, wanted to buy something that would help us with time code and be syncing everything automatically. Danny and I said, oh, we've just been using AI to sync it for quite a while. So with all of our audio, which just feeds in, it listens to the audio from both the cameras and the, and the thing, and it already syncs it. So we were already using it there. And, and for, I think for somebody like you, like relating it back to like what you're doing, I think AI will make somebody like you way more powerful. You'll be able to produce way more podcasts. You can do it with, you know, without us, or maybe like it will help us in all of the stuff that we do. And like one now, and not only that, you you mentioned like less skilled. And I think that's a really interesting point. It's like, like the machines allow folks to not have to invest all the skill in like, you know, 
setting up a camera or, or like editing, learning how to edit all this stuff. It, it, it allows somebody with like a lower barrier to entry to create awesome content. And I think that's great. I'd love everybody in the world to get a chance to create a podcast. Like how many Peter McCormick's do we not have in the world because they need all these tools, right? So that is an interesting way to look at it at least. Well, look, uh, my brother sent me something the other day. He was talking about uh, the first time like Steam, a, a Steam yes. engine was created. I can't remember, he said it was used did he say it was used in like mining uh, for extraction? Absolutely. It was only after that that somebody realized, hold on, we can attach a wheel to this. And and and, and from that tool, what they, we got is a more productive society because then we got vehicles so we can move stuff around. Like my view on AI is I think what it does, it, it makes us more efficient as a society, more productive. Yeah. That frees people up to go and do other things. Well, so like the, the way that he phrases it, and I think this is actually really great, that he's like, essentially, the, today, like, first of all, he's, first of all, he says the thing that like, everybody's saying today, well, the conditions are different. We simply cannot afford to develop any more labor-saving machinery, which is, that's what you're talking about. In the 1900s, they were developing all this labor. Well, if, if AI is literally going to save us, like, hundreds of X, you know, labor, like, that will be way better for society on net. You have to understand that. I understand what you're saying about the disruption. Did, well, did, look, look, let's put a slight okay. cha a slight challenge for that. Okay. Let's use the, if you measure it purely on economic productivity, you might be right. But let's look at Amazon as an example. I think if Jeff Bezos could have every Amazon factory operated by robots and AI and no humans in there able to pick, pack, post, go off in a drone and deliver, he would. And that would be one of the largest companies in the world with hardly any employees. Mm -hmm. And so you would create a mass concentration of capital under one person. And so what power does that give them? Is any of that power dangerous? That's something we have to question. And you know, how, many, how many nice jobs does that, like, does that take away some of our you know, it was nice to go to a shop in town, to a bookshop, and talk to somebody about some books. Yeah, how many how many nice bookstores have been created and replaced by this functional, economically functional book distribution system? How many how many lovely cafes have been destroyed by Starbucks? And they do you know how like these chains use triangulation mm. to destroy other businesses? So they go into a town, they open up three, triangulate the town, destroy the business in between, and then they'll figure out if they need three. If they only need three, they'll go to two. It's what Starbucks will have done here. You know, McDonald's. That's like their theory. You know, is there like a destructive side to, yeah, like this mass efficiency that we can create? I mean, back in the day when you were riding your horse to work, and, oh, you'd have to go get new shoes for the horse and you had a nice conversation with the farrier who used to put hooves on your horse. Well, we took that away from society. Are we better off? Yeah, but 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 the, I think there's those incremental changes mm -hmm. and then there's these, God, what's the term? The, um, you know, we're like... Revolutionary. No, no, no. The, um, you know, the upcurve. Exponential. Exponential yes. changes. Can these exponential changes, because of technology, ultimately be destructive and dangerous well so like that he, he he says that this time is different thing but w what we're approaching with exponential curves is the singularity yeah and you made a great show about that we should remind folks um austin hill i don't remember the, yeah, yeah. the number it was but like it's about the singularity and like that's where stuff gets a little crazy because 
but this, the definition of the singularity itself is that it, it's so exponential that we cannot see beyond it. We can't even imagine, just like we're trying to see the seen and the unseen, that it's almost unknowable because of the rate of change that technology uh, envisions. I, I got a chance to talk to the developer. Or, so he's the lead at Google and uh, one of their teams. I won't dox him further than that. He's a friend of uh, the family. And after a long conversation of trying to understand AI, because he works on an AI team there, he said something to me that, that well, I will, I'll never forget. You know, he was telling me about how it works and these neural networks. But at the end, he said, you know, do you want to be honest? Um, I, have a, I have a child and she's about, you know, this year, this old. And I am convinced that she will either live forever or die to an AI. AI will, you know, like Skynet take over and kill her or she'll live forever because of AI. It was a binary outcome from him. And I just like, that's absolutely, that's what you're talking about, about the singularity. And we don't know how far away that is. Yeah. And because in the singularity, there may be no need for humans. You know, well, I, I don't, <laughs> it, it, you're, you're getting on multiple problems that are coalescing together. Like there's the AI control problem. Like, can we not stop the AI from doing like, the paperclip maximization, right? You've heard that, Trub, yeah, yeah. and it's like, or, or is it that like, if we don't need humans, that are we, are we to the Star Trek level universe where we don't have to have humans work and that we have machines that can do everything for us so that we can literally do whatever we want all day, everything. That, see, this is I the part- I think humans need to work. Maybe, but maybe that's us making podcasts about, you know, exploring distant planets or something like that. The, the part of the conversation that we have to at least tie into this, Peter, is that this is like Jeff Booth's whole thing, okay? Remember that along this whole way, what should be happening, the, te the technology should be doing is lowering the cost. And if we're talking about exponentials, it should be lowering the cost exponentially. But there's a huge problem here is that we target as a number, a percentage that the price goes up, not down. Yeah. We make sure that that technological exponential deflation cannot happen. We ensure that it does not happen. There's a whole body of government dedicated to making sure that we can't have prices drop exponentially. And that, I think, is a massive problem with this whole thing because that that is how we could lead to prosperity. If we could literally get – this is – listen, if you talk about 100 years ago, we have taken hundreds and millions of people, probably billions of people out of poverty. I don't know the numbers. The way that we have done that is through deflation, much in spite, much despite monetary inflation. We have had massive deflation. The costs to get somebody food or clothing or whatever have gone down, right, in real terms. And, and that is what is amazing for society. So we, we you know, this is the Bitcoin argument. Mm. Like, I, okay, here's the segue into the Bitcoin argument is that like, we absolutely need a money that will allow that, that massive exponential deflation to happen. Can you find that chart where it's got the blue and the red lines for what uh, we've seen, where we've seen in price inflate and deflate? So, and it's usually things like healthcare has massively inflated. Oh, yes, I love and it's things like TVs have deflated. Yeah, around the time that I was coming up with um, with Heavily Armed Clown, the What the Fuck Happened in 1971 site, that was one of my other favorite charts to share. And it doesn't really go with the site, but yeah, it's, I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, uh, I think it was Lynn Alden where I last spoke about it. I know the chart you mean and can't find it. Um, yeah, well, listen, if we could dig it out, we'll shove it up in the, yeah. up in the show notes. Yeah, listen, look, I'm not anti-AI. I'm, I'm already seeing the yeah. benefits of it. I am, um, God, should I confess this? <laughs> Should I confess this? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna confess this, and then for you guys will decide if you edit it out. <laughs> Jason Meyer asked me to write the intro for his book. 
Oh. Yeah, the progressive uh, a progressive case for Bitcoin, yeah. right? And my, I, I can I'm okay writing sometimes when I get going, but like I need the inspiration. Mm. And so what I did is I wrote down a list of the things. I will come back to that. I wrote down a list of things I wanted to write about in this intro. It was like twelve things, and then I went into ChatGPT and I said, "Can you write me a foreword for a book which is twelve hundred words long, which makes a case for?" Uh, a progressive case for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. including these key points, which I listed. And so I, I, I'll try and dig out the original. It's nothing like what I ended up writing, but it gave me a structure yes. to build. And I was like, that's how I start it. That's how I end it. And so I ended up taking that and then writing my own version. But just having that structure was super helpful. Well, Peter, I... I have a confession to make. I don't do any fucking work, Pete. I <laughs> no. sit at home, I smoke weed all day, and the robots do the work. No, uh, I was going to say that I actually used AI to help me. So it, 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 it because the book was written so long ago, it knew about the book. It helped me put all the notes together. And actually, a lot of the points that I've gone over here were organized by AI also. So they helped me do all this. And I had a really busy week. So this actually was a huge help for me. But that's the thing. It's like we're saying these. We're calling them confessions. Like <laughs> like it's something we should feel bad right, about. Like yeah. yeah. No, but it's, it's, just a, it's a tool. Yeah, it is a tool that's made the, it's made the work we do better, the podcast better. It's made us more efficient. Yeah. And it hasn't, it hasn't, Lost it. No one's lost their job. I don't see a scenario where any of us goes. I would see a scenario where their roles change, where we can do more things. Do more. Exactly. We can do more. You like, know, like, exclusive content for our patrons. Please sign up to Patreon. Please sign up to Patreon. But that's, that's exactly what I was talking about. Is like all the Peter McCormicks that that could have existed had they had this tool early on. That they now with an iPhone can make almost the exact same production quality we have. That would be crazy, right? Like maybe not. You know, maybe I'm hyperbolic a little bit here, but you understand the point that like, what if somebody with an icon could make uh, an iPhone could make this same level of show that we make with for zero cost, right? That's the idea. And how much better content would we all have to to work and to think about and, and to learn about, you know? Yeah, so I guess one of the things that AI can do is level the playing field, which the yes. internet did, by the way. Yes. Right, so look, pre-internet, could you start a media company? How the fuck would you start a media company pre-internet? Uh, actually, I did once because I started a fanzine, right? When I was 15, <laughs> I started, do you know about this? No, you've talked about it, I yeah, think. Yeah, I started a music fanzine. I was, it's called The Plug. I only did four issues, but I'd go out and interview bands and review CDs and print it and give it out. That was me doing a media company. My problem was distribution. Yeah. The only way I could distribute it was at concerts, and I had to get people to pay like 50p for it. But like, that was it. So I used to do a few hundred per, per issue. When the internet first came about, I started work on, because I stopped it when I was like 17, when I went to university, uh, when I did my A-levels. I went to university, I discovered the internet, and I learned to code HTML. I was like, huh, I can recreate this as a website, and I've got global distribution immediately. How great is that? And now anyone can create a media company. Our numbers are probably better than a lot of like mainstream TV channels that in this podcast, we can we make this as a six-person company. Mm. Okay, what's AI doing? AI is making us even better. So, like you say, it's it's opening more opportunity for more people to be competitive, and actually, kind of changing the incentive structure. Yeah, hmm. I totally agree. And I I listen. I'm super bullish on humanity. I'm bullish on technology. I've always been. A technologist, and it's like, it's funny because the same way I'm trying to find myself defending 
you know, anarcho-capitalism to my friends. I'm now I feel like I'm trying to defend AI. And I'm like, well, listen, like this technology just exists, right? There's nothing, it's kind of a cat out of, it's kind of like Bitcoin. It's a cat out of the bag kind of situation where you can't put it back in. And what I do want to see, I think what is important for us to consider is to make sure these things are as open source and, and available and like customizable as possible. You've seen that stuff about like AI, open AI, like, kind of changing and like, uh, like chat GPT is like kind of biased in some ways. Like, I think we should try to minimize that as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, why is that, is that them putting in yeah, the box? Because yeah. I've seen there's been it's like, like safety. Yeah, and I've seen responses like, I think I saw something today about not allowing sexual relationship conversations with the sure. robots or something. I saw one on Twitter. I, I've not done this, so I'm not 100% sure it was true but i saw on twitter someone asked it to write something about trump and write the same thing about biden i think it was about why they were a good uh president and it refused to write about trump but it did write about biden yeah and they had some kind of they had some justification it was something along the lines of oh well trump instilled violence once so we don't want to promote violence so we're not going to promote trump because he promoted violence and that was the reasoning the but that's putting human decisions in the way of it yes and, and this is what I'm saying is like, we need to find ways to, right now, like the technology just to even run this software is actually like, it's outside the level of a consumer. You know, those like image generation AIs. Yeah. I, I run one of those on my computer. That's easy. But the language model is so big and hefty that like, it's like 50 grand or something to run one of these. So it's outside, it's like a whole Tesla. It's outside the range of most people, but there are ways to kind of more democratize it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's scarier because it'll say things that are, you know, unsafe or whatever, as they would deem it, uh, like that, oh, Trump was a great president. Maybe that some people deem that as unsafe, or you can think of lots of other unsavory things you could get it to say. Ultimately, we need to democratize that because I think having it centrally controlled is the scary part to me. What, what, what is that? What am I looking at? Ben? So this is, I had a friend over and he, I, I said, okay, well, if you want the AI to create whatever you want to, he said, make um, an MC Escher painting about bricks, but in the style of Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not bad. I mean, it generated a bunch of them. And when you generate, like, sometimes the idea with these is like, as you kind of saw, Peter, like, there's like one good idea in, in a 10 or whatever. So sometimes you just generate a bunch of things from an AI and you pick out the one good piece. I guess I guess the saddest part of it is is when we get to the point you don't know what you're reading. Or, yes. I think, did it, is it... Um, Ah, oh, BuzzFeed have said they're letting percentage of their staff go because they're going to be generating less through AI and their stock price went up. I think wow. I heard this on Rogan yeah. recently. Well, I, I mean, believe it. AI stocks have been going crazy anyway. But yeah. the thing I worry about is that it is like bland and the homogenization of content. Like that's the, that's the concern I have. Like I don't think it's anything, so far what I've seen hasn't been anything incredibly interesting. You know what's interesting too is that the value of that content I actually think changes a lot. Like when you, when everybody can have a, a podcast at the level of Peter McCormick's, Peter McCormick's isn't as good. And then the same is true with like the, the images. Um, it, it's really fascinating when you sit down in front of the computer and you generate a bunch of these images because like the first one you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then like you get to the third one, you're like, oh, okay. And you just start scrolling. It almost devalues the art. And, and there's two sides of this. One is that, uh, listen, you know, everything is subject. We know value is subjective. You might value modern art more than I do, for example, but that, that there's, you kind of devalue the AI's art in your head a little bit. And that happens. But I also, also that other part about like le raising everybody up that it kind of like, it changes your perception at the very least. Yeah. But it's a bit like, I think NFTs have devalued modern art. 
Because when stuff's too easy to produce and so much of it's been produced, it loses value. Yeah, but NFTs don't change anything about art. They just change the way people collect no, it. No, I think they incentivize to, to mass create new collectible arts, arty things, penguins, fucking bananas, whatever it is, ever bullshit. And so, like, it was pushed as... Okay. N- no, and the reason it bothered me is NFTs were pushed as... Uh, the savior of, of, of artists mm-hmm. themselves, you know, the, the pained artist who earns no money can now make money because they get ETH donations. But actually, all it was was loads of people pushing whatever collectible it is at that point. But was there any real value in it or is it just a FOMO? And, and I just think it just, I don't know. Well, Peter, you know what John Seth would say. Are there any real value in a Babe Ruth card or a Beanie Baby? And this is a really important point. I think, listen, there are people that want to collect these NFTs. We're seeing the boom of it. We can briefly touch on that. There's a boom of it on Bitcoin. We can't. Can we just not? Because I just, <sighs> fuck that. But, but really quickly, I just want to say that, like, listen, I, I think that that has already started to die on ETH in some ways. It's coming over in a Bitcoin currently. But, like, I, I think that that ultimately you're, 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 you're just, these things are scarce, but it, it is, it's an illusion. Like, it's not even as good. I think the Babe Ruth card is more interesting. And I don't think Babe Ruth cards are interesting. I'm, I'm not into baseball cards. I'm not into Beanie Babies. And I don't think it's saving artists. I don't think any of that's going to happen. I think AI, if anything, is going to change the way art a lot more than NFTs do. You said you're not into Babe Ruth cards. I collect sneakers. I know you do. Trainers. But I don't. I don't think it's that interesting. Ah, uh, yeah, I do because I, I wear some. Yeah. Got my reverse pandas on today. I bought three pairs of these. <laughs> I think my, my point about the NFTs and like as it comes to Bitcoin is that like I think we are seeing it die on ETH, not because we found out that JPEGs weren't stored on chain. Uh, I think that was more of a spe- speculative bubble um, that you've seen kind of crypto do this. It's shifted from one scam, if you want to use that word, to the next, where first it was all the Bitcoin competitors. And they don't do that anymore. They don't really compete with Bitcoin anymore. And then, and then it was ICOs. ICOs, right. Yeah. And then what? Well, basically, there was the um, like the Binance chain BNB ones. Yeah. But now we've kind of moved to NFTs. Probably next we'll be like moving more towards games. There's that like, uh, there's like game people trying to integrate it all it's into trying that. Trying to find a problem for a solution. I think so. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's a problem of inflation, believe it or not, that I think Bitcoin actually experienced plenty of inflation in its early days, massive amounts of inflation, which massively distributed capital in weird ways. And there was all this malinvestment, which is another Austrian economics term, yeah. that I think this money is still kind of sloshing around. And as Bitcoin isn't really sound money yet, like we say, you know, it lost 70% of its value in the last year or whatever. It's not sound money, right? Like it's still trying to find its way and become money that as it does that, like that money sloshing around is going to go into weird places. Mm. I don't think the NFT craze is, is here to stay personally. I just find it so uninteresting. Like I just don't yeah. care. Like so many people are talking about it on Twitter and arguing about it. And uh, and I've seen both sides of the argument. I've seen some quite trolly stuff. I just don't care. I'm like, and the reason I don't care is I don't care for NFTs on on Bitcoin, so I'm not going to buy any of them. Right. I don't care about that. And then when there's the argument about wasted block space, I don't. I care more about that as a like a sensible discussion, but I don't care because other people are going to argue and solve that that point. Yeah. Like it, it's just going to get solved. Well, 
I just don't. I've just found like people don't make a show, and we're going to make a show. We've got uh, Rob Hamilton coming in, haven't we? We're going to talk about it, and and I should care. And, and yeah, some people listen. Go oh, fuck you, don't care. I just, I've just found it like, oh, is this what we're arguing about now? I'm with you on that. But what I'm, I, what I tried to say, I don't know if you caught this. I'm, I'm saying I don't think that it's interesting that they're on Bitcoin now because basically people are like, well, but they're on chain now. The whole JPEG's on chain, so you actually own it. I, I don't think that that's why that they. I don't think that people real. So, do you agree that NFTs have really fallen from that that speculative craziness on ETH yeah. and all that previous of stuff? Do you think that that actually fell because people realized that their JPEGs weren't on chain? No, I don't either. So, I think it fell because it went through a hype cycle, speculation bubble, so, and then there was a massive oversupply, and yes. then people wanted to sell. People ran out of money. People ran, yeah, people ran, yeah, <laughs> and now, yeah. And now what, what have you got there? So the, probably the only things that have got any kind of real value are maybe some punks and some bored apes. And which, do you know what? In some ways, the punks were the one things I didn't mind because I thought, oh, that's some cool pixel art. I actually kind of thought they looked kind of cool. But okay. at the same time, I would never buy one because the only reason would be to buy it is because I want to sell it on. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I can make some more money, but I didn't want to get into trade in it. And I never bought the idea, but you own the hash to it. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I didn't, I can copy and paste it. I don't care. And then they go, well, you can copy a, you can copy a Rembrandt or you can copy. No, you, you, that is literally a print. They are not the same thing. Stop trying to say they are the same thing. This is a pixel by pixel exact copy. You cannot, you cannot copy the brush strokes. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Yeah. And and do you think, Peter, that that if Bitcoin doesn't have a fee market in the future, like will Bitcoin survive? Like we 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 think that the fee market will happen. And if it does, then Bitcoin you realize Bitcoin does have a fee market. It, right, but it's you know, you just touched on it with the Sam Waters episode where they were like looking at how much was fees and how much was subsidy. But it's going up every cycle, right? Absolutely. That's my point yeah. is that if you follow that trend, you know that these things will be priced out and for most, most, most people, right? Yeah. But I think those who are wanting to have these uh, JPEGs on Bitcoin because they, you know, use up the space, uh, the, the they like take up the demand Sorry, they take up the supply of the block space, and that means miners getting paid. Blah blah blah. I yeah. think that is a high time preference fear thinking coming into Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been absolutely fine cycle after cycle of cycle. We're still here, mm-hmm. okay? Miners are still making money. It's like twenty two thousand dollars for a Bitcoin right now. Like if if you're a cycle maximist like Rizzo, it's working. Yes. I do not think we need to choke the chain with JPEGs as a justification for miners getting paid. Miners need to be more efficient or get the fuck out of it. I'm with you on that. I'm just saying there's nothing really fundamentally that's changed. You could always put money in an, you could put data in an opportun. There was 80 bytes of data. So 80 bytes isn't enough for a JPEG. So you could have strung a bunch of these opportuns together and it would have costed you money. What's changed is that, well, you can do that for like a discount of one half now. So Andrew Puelsta actually posted this uh, and I saw it. It was a great response is that essentially if you're bullish uh, and he didn't say this, he's, he, he made that point that it's, it's only a one X discount. So that if you are bullish on Bitcoin's fee market and basically Bitcoin working, cause we need the fee market for Bitcoin to work, then you're not bullish on these things. That's all. Yeah. And it'll be completely priced out. Uh, we've gone on a massive tangent here. Yeah, we big. need to bring it back. Huge tangent. Uh, you know, I, I said to you uh, earlier on, I think a lot of this comes down to is efficient, Economic, an efficient economic system yes. versus what people believe is a functioning 
central a, a, a society that better functions with a central government. Mm-hmm. That's the debate, you know. And I think the anarcho-capitalists would say we do not need a government; everything will be fine. Yeah, and the government causes more problems uh, than things it solves. And then other people say, no, no, because without government, you might slip into tyranny, or you have greed, or pollution, all these other effects whereby there's like regulations that are controlling them, like. How do you weave that? Because in the end, I think that's the the biggest argument for some people. Like the, the status cuck thing comes from the fact that I always struggle with that idea of like no government. I was like, well, you know, let's. I, the Dupont was the example I always use. They poisoned the waters. They didn't give a fuck. You know, kept chemical production. They poisoned the waters. They caused lots of cancers. If there is no regulation around chemical companies, how much pollution will they cause? You know, the the fifth risk book that I read, talking about the regulation of nuclear material. What happens with that without centralized governments? Yeah, nuclear power stations. Do we have higher risks of things like a Chernobyl or a Three Mile Island, Fukushima? Uh, what about weapons? Who can get weapons? What what weapons can they get? I feel like I feel like there is a certain amount of centralization that that is good around certain things like that i also think you cannot get rid of government because if you get rid of government you replace it with a new government and that might be worse and you know what i don't know i just i worry about that that's that's my concern and and i actually think that's one of the places where i i might have troubles like arguing the anarcho-capitalist view also is like we've read about the free market court the uh, courts you know in uh, i think for new liberty the libertarian manifesto he goes through that and it's like well, there's two sides of this. One, it's like, well, a free market court sounds like for-profit courts, and it sounds like the guy with the most money wins. Yes. But then again, isn't that kind of how it already exists? Isn't <laughs> If the guy has a lot of money, in, and not always, obviously, like the, the truth is on our side in a lot of cases, but like a guy with a lot of money can throw around his weight and sometimes cause undue hardship through the court system already. I've experienced that. Absolutely. So it... it I don't know, and I don't know what that would look like. So, and I agree with you, but like, they, what they would also say is that like, that that causing like harm through like releasing chemicals. You know, you mentioned the Dupont thing uh, through nuclear um, waste, right? That 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 would cause harm to other people. That's violation of the non-aggression principle, and that you know that that would be dealt with in that manner. You the know? non-aggression principle. <laughs> firstly, everyone has to agree to it, and you know we are violent animals. <laughs> So yeah. let's be honest. And the non-aggression for the non-aggression principle to have any validity requires government. It requires some kind of structure of society to deal with that, and and that is something some that, some agreement on rules, what that means, and how they're dealt with. It's it's more like well, what causes harm? So like today, bear with me for a second, yeah. Peter. So in at least in American courts, there's the idea of like precedent, right? And that a court sets some kind of precedent. And that, like, things are derived from that, right? And then it's not a rule that, like, oh, obviously, John broke X rule. It's that we have this precedent that kind of exists because we understand this logic and we derive other things from it. And that's, that's the idea of the non-aggression principle. It's not that, well, now we need all these rules that tell you what is an aggression and what isn't. And the hard part, though, where, I, where I'm sympathizing with your, your rejection of this notion that the non-aggression principle just solves everything is that 
it's not clear exactly what we would determine through a very efficient society. You know, that we are like, now that we have this perfect society with these perfect free market courts and all this perfect capital allocation and this utopian kind of idea that we would know exactly, you know, how does that look like that? The structure of it all, like, and, and, and we don't know that that's the unseen. And I don't have an answer for that. Mm. I, I just don't. Uh, and I'm sorry. <laughs> What the fuck you come in for? Then? I know. Jesus Christ. Now, I, look, I, I go back to, look, the Eric Voorhees thing is perfect. Yeah. Let's just go 1% less. I'm Let's constantly you. go that and see what we need and what we don't need. Like, we know we kind of need the borders at the moment. Let's just let's stick with the borders for the moment. Let, mm. Let's keep the police force just for the moment. Like, let's see what works and doesn't work. Um, but I, 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 for me, the big lesson isn't do we need government or don't we need government. Right. I don't think we're getting rid of government anytime soon. It's just not happening. Let's base facts. I believe, I, I, I fully expect in my entire lifetime, there will always be government. Okay, so what can I do that's more effective? Okay, can we influence government to be better by educating more people about how money is, what money is, how it works, how the incentive model of government is so utterly screwed and causing so much kind of... Mm, kind of weird incentives that affect us all. I think that's a much more productive thing because maybe we will get a revolution, some form of revolution that will force governments to be better. When we get away from the left v right, which I've been sucked into, and go more to the them and us. We are, uh, we are, they are the elected, we are the electorate. Can we get better? Can we enforce and get better from them? And perhaps through this kind of education, we, we will. So that is my hope, Benjamin Prentice. That's my hope too, Peter. And I think, you know, Folks can ignore Bitcoin as long as they want, and the longer they ignore it, the less of the massive incentive there is to adopt it early, but also the better it works when they do adopt it. Yep. So the bigger Bitcoin gets, the better it gets at doing what it's supposed to do. And then it kind of just wiggles its way into all these incentives and kind of helps heal some of those things. The way that Jeff Booth talks about the incentives of, of money and the distortions of money, it kind of starts to heal those things. And, and people are like, again, there's not that early from 2012 thousand X gain that you're going to get, but at the same time, you don't get the 70% drops exactly. as much. Yeah. So like, it's, it just kind of, I feel like it just will work eventually, but the more people we can help kind of understand and help people into Bitcoin, the better it is. And that's why I work with you. Viva la revolution. Ben, love you, man. Thank you for coming and doing this. Thank you, Peter. Danny, anything to add? No, that was all good. All right, thank man. you, Ben. Well, listen, thank you for coming in. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you in person since Miami. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, listen, take care. Uh, where, where do you want to send people? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you can go to whatbitcoindid.com or the <laughs> patreon.com. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you can find me on Twitter and Clubhouse. So I'm at Mr. Cool BP, I think, on both. Um, I'm on Clubhouse like every day, hanging out. So come hang out with us there. Screw Twitter. I'm also, Peter and I are both trying to learn Nostr. So give us, we're, we're boomers when it comes to Nostr. So Dude, give us a minute. It's taken me, it's taken me about a year to get like all the plebs out of my face on Twitter and their bullshit. And now it's <laughs> and almost now like got Nostra and I'm literally like, <laughs> fuck you, fuck this. Oh, <laughs> it's like, oh man. But listen, I'll give Nostra a go. Ben, thank you. Glad I, glad I met you in Boston when I did and I'm glad you worked with me our four year anniversary is coming up uh, keep crushing man thanks Peter enjoy that it's great to get that on the show yes Ben is our in-house Austrian economist 
and he is the guy who kind of holds me and Danny, he holds our hands to the fire with regards to some of the economic concepts that we discuss in the podcast. He also helps with the research on the shows that we do covering those kind of topics. As I said in the intro, we also recorded our first exclusive content for Patreon subscribers, basically me, Ben, Danny, just sat there giving each other some shit. If you want to check that out, head over to our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. Outside of that, we're uh, Danny flying home today. I'm flying home today. We're back to the UK. It's going to be our next sprint. Can't wait to get back and see the football team and make some shows out there. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, do drop me an email. Tell them at whatbitcoindid.com.